any of you have been following the news recently, you are probably aware of some of the major changes happening at that little bird app. You know Twitter, that scourge of American civilization. I, I frankly wish they just nuked the whole thing and went into a thousand, uh, and, 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 and the whole technology just exploded. I'm not a Twitter uh, I don't have a Twitter account. Um, I, I think it has contributed a lot to some ills in our society. But nonetheless, if you've been following the news, you know that it has been purchased by a man named Elon Musk, um, either the world's richest man or something close to it, a multi-billionaire. And Twitter has been going through a number of different changes under his ownership. Recently, you may have seen the news that hit headlines across the country that Twitter employees received a somewhat startling message from Mr. Elon Musk. Elon Musk is a man who boasts that he uh, has, works 100-hour weeks. He is a famous hard charger, a driving man uh, who is committed to success. And he uh, wrote to inform his uh, existing employees at Twitter that they would need, quote-unquote, exceptional performance. Here's what he said, quote, going forward, to build a breakthrough Twitter 2.0 and succeed in an increasingly competitive world, we will need to be extremely hardcore. This is a message to all his employees. We will need to be extremely hardcore. This will mean working long hours at high intensity. Only exceptional performance will constitute a passing grade. And here's, in fact, what he said. He gave the staff a link to click on if they wanted to be a part of the new Twitter. A link that they had to click on. It was essentially opting in to continued employment at Twitter under these terms by a particular time and a particular day. And he said that anyone who has not confirmed their commitment by that deadline would receive three months of severance pay. A guy who said very clearly, these are the expectations for your continued employment, working long hours at high intensity and under exceptional performance. Now, you can say or have your own opinions about whether that's a healthy model for an employer, whether those would be the right decisions to make for Twitter, but you can't fault Elon Musk for this. He's being pretty clear about his expectations. Have any of you ever pulled up on your phone a little message that says you need to update to new terms and conditions? And then it says, by clicking accept, you are accepting that you have read and agreed to the following 38 pages of, of fine print telling you the conditions. Now, I suspect that many of you are liars multi-times over because you have clicked that and you have said, I have read, and no, you have not read, my friend, and neither have I. You just do it. And we know it's, it's, it's a part of, 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 of a, the American kind of legal and business world that you're called to accept the fine print, all those things that the lawyers tell them they need to slip in, those dastardly folks. And then they do it, and they hope you never read it or see it. We know the difference between, on the one hand, Elon Musk saying, do you want to opt in to being a Twitter employee? Then here's the expectations. And between trying to slide it in 
in the fine print. Well, today we come to one of the most sobering and serious of any passage in our entire New Testament, the words of Jesus Christ himself. And we're, what, we're, what we're going to see here, I think, this morning is that Jesus doesn't operate in the fine print. He doesn't ask you to accept the terms and conditions of being his disciple by hoping you don't notice. He says very clearly, do you want to come after me? Do you want to be my follower? Do you want to have a relationship with me? then we're going to put the terms and conditions not in fine print that some people may never read. We're going to put them right up front and expressly and clearly. He says, do you want to know the terms and conditions for coming after me? These apply to anyone whosoever will come after me. He said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He goes on then to explain what he means. For, because, I'm going to explain it to you. Because whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake, and the gospel's the same, shall find it. For, here's more explanation, because what does it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever, therefore, a more explanation. These verses are all connected together. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The title of the message this morning is simply The Terms of Discipleship. The Terms of Discipleship. And Jesus is going to ask you this morning, just like he put the terms and conditions so clearly out 2,000 years ago to all who are listening, he will say to us today, are you desiring to be my disciple? Are you desiring to be my follower? Then I'm going to make the terms and conditions very clear. Let's understand, first of all, the conditions, the conditions that are a part of these terms of discipleship. Now notice again, if you'll open your Bible with me or if you already have it open to chapter 8, look with me at verse 34. He has called the people unto him with his disciples. Now what's the context? Just recently, even last week, we were looking at the message that Peter gives to Jesus. Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street about me? And the people, his disciples respond to him, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Other people say that you're Elijah. You're truly in that messianic line until our Messiah comes. And others just say you're one of the prophets. You're just a messenger sent from God to speak his words. And Jesus looks at them with this kind of midterm examination. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, if you can just see him kind of puffing his chest out and the buttons popping a little bit in him saying, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. And we looked at last week what he was saying by that. You're the Messiah. You're the one who was prophesied of God to be the king over the people of God in a restored Israel, in a restored Jerusalem. You are the king of God's kingdom. And Jesus accepts it because it was true. 
And then he began to tell them that here's what's going to happen to this king. Yes, I am the king, but I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And I must rise the third day from the dead. And Peter takes him and begins to rebuke him. He begins to say, this is not going to be to you, Lord. This is not part of your mission. No, we're not going to let this happen to you. And Jesus looks at the disciples and at Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. You are standing in Satan's place to try to stop me from fulfilling God's purpose for my life. And now in this context... Jesus calls the crowd to him, not just his small group of disciples. He now calls the crowd with his disciples, consistent with him saying to Peter, Peter, you're dealing with the things of man, not the things of God. You're savoring, you're focusing on what man's concerns are, not what God's concerns are. God's concerns are the cross, our death, our suffering, our resurrection for me. This is my path, Peter. This is God's plan for me. And then he calls the people together. And now listen to these words with a new ear. Whosoever will come after me. Not just Peter and James and John and these disciples here. Any one of you, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. You must take up the cross of suffering. You must follow me. You say, why are you emphasizing this so much? It's because in our day today, actually, and in the circles in which we are in Christendom today, this passage is controversial. Because there is a dispute even among people whom I agree with and love wholeheartedly about whether this passage is speaking to those who were already Christians, already disciples, that need to get to kind of the next level... You need to get a little more spiritual. You need to try a little bit harder to deny yourself. Or whether it's to those who are unsaved. Whether this is calling them to become a Christian. And this passage is hotly disputed. Like I said, even among those with whom I agree on very many things. And here's my simple reaction. Who is he talking to? He's talking to his disciples, yes. And he's talking to those who aren't his disciples. He's talking to his followers. And he's talking to those who aren't yet his followers. What does that tell me, friends? This message is to everyone. It's not just to those who you need to get to a second level of your Christian experience. Does this passage have something for you today? If you're a Christian, you better believe it does. Absolutely it does. Because we all need to grow more and more in what it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily, as Luke records, and follow him. This is for you, Christian. But if you're here today and you're not sure about whether you want to follow Jesus, you're not sure about whether you are willing to accept him as your savior and follow him by faith, friends, this passage is for you too. Because what Jesus, I think, is saying here is simply this. Here's what it is to be a Christian. Here's what it is to be my follower. This is not some kind of next level where you decide to become a Christian and then you get to decide whether you want to be hardcore or really just laid back. No, Jesus doesn't operate like that. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the terms and conditions right up front. I'm not going to try to sneak you in the side door of Christian life and then we'll get into that hard stuff in the small groups. Uh-uh. He's saying, do you want to follow me? Do you want to be a Christian? 
Do you want to, if you'll pardon the metaphor, do you want to be an employee at Twitter? Then here are the terms. This is what it means. You see, this is really connected to what our name is as a church and what our kind of life passages as a church body. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. You see, there's a straight gate. That's how you get in the door. And where does that gate lead? To a narrow way. And Jesus says both of them lead to life. He doesn't say straight is the gate that leads to life, and there's a narrow way if you want to follow it and be extra spiritual. No, be clear, friends. He says there's a straight gate, and there's a narrow way. And he says, do you want to know what it is to go through the straight gate and to walk on the narrow way? You're going to have to understand what it is to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Friends, we shouldn't, we shouldn't confuse the gospel. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's how you get in the straight gate. But Jesus wants to say clearly to you, do you want to understand what it is to be a Christian on my narrow way? This is the way. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow me. This is a, a term and condition that he wants to be entirely clear. This is relationship with Jesus Christ. Now you say, what are those conditions? Well, let's just look at them briefly. Notice what he says. Do you want to come after me? Whosoever, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. What does it mean to deny yourself? This word is a very powerful word. It has the idea of utterly denouncing. This word is used when Peter denied that he knew Jesus. When Peter stood in front of a little servant girl when Jesus was on trial and denied, denounced, I do not know him. I don't know him at all. Now what does Jesus say? You are denouncing, utterly denying yourself. Friends, how countercultural is that today? I may have shared with you recently the famous quarterback, Tom Brady, who when he was explaining why he, he went back on his promise to his wife to retire from football and come back to football, and now they're in the process, I think, of divorcing and ending their long marriage together. Tom Brady said, he said, you know, the reality is you just need to be authentic to yourself. You just need to be authentic to yourself. And what a bunch of nonsense. What a bunch of nonsense. What a satanic lie. Friends, Jesus is telling us, if you want to be authentically Christian, you don't, you don't give in to your authentic self. You deny yourself. You turn from yourself. You see, there's something what, what one pastor called a kind of sacred schizophrenia. Because you're yourself but you need to deny yourself. You see that? You're yourself, but you need to say there's a part of you that you need to say no to, that you need to deny, that you need to renounce. Deny yourself. Notice what else he says. Let him take up his cross. Now, the cross today has been sanitized by centuries of Christians who have held it up on, uh, as a as a as a nice little memorial on their church. They've worn it as a crucifix around their neck. They have had some aspect of the cross that is a part of their daily life. 
but we have no idea truly what the cross would have meant to a first century Roman who was reading this or to a first century Jew who Jesus was speaking to here because the cross was the most cruel and unusual form of capital punishment that the world had ever seen. It was estimated that up to 30,000 Jews were crucified by the Romans. This was not a Jewish punishment. This was a Roman punishment, cruelly inflicted on those. It involved, as perhaps you know, men who were hung up to die, nails in their wrists and through their feet, and they were hung naked along a public highway to die slowly and excruciatingly so that everyone could walk by them and see their offense um, tacked up on top of that cross and to say, I'll never do that. That's what happens to those kind of people. It was, a, it was an instrument of shame. Here's what Jesus says. If you want to be my follower, you're going to take up that cross. You're going to pick it up, and you're going to walk with it. Why? Because a person who was taken to the cross to be executed, they bore their own cross beam. You know, the cross has a, 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 a vertical dimension that was oftentimes just a tree that you were literally a tree in the ground, but it had a cross beam, and you carried your own cross beam as you went to that cross. You were a convicted criminal on death row. Now, what has Jesus just said to Peter? Peter, you don't understand. I must suffer. I must be killed. Peter, I'm on death row. And now he looks at the whole crowd, and he says, you want to come after me? You're going to have to be on death row too. You're on death row. You know, in the 1800s down south, that brutal, barbaric method of death that was so unjustly used, the method of hanging a noose, it still evokes so many powerful senses, even under our modern culture today, a noose. Jesus is saying in our language today, join me on death row with a noose around your neck. That's what I mean. Do you want to be my follower? What are the terms and conditions? Join me on death row with a noose around your neck. That's what it involves. Wow. Wow. And then he says, if you want to come after me, whosoever will come after me, who will have a relationship with me, who will follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, your identification is with me now. You are going to be side by side with me. You are going to be on death row right next to me, a one who is headed in that direction toward death. This is my calling, and therefore it's yours too. Those are the conditions. And friends, we should ask ourselves today, wherever we are, whether we're curious about a relationship with Jesus Christ. We've never come into that relationship. Do you see Jesus holding out the terms and conditions? Do you want to know what it is to be a Christian? Do you want to know what it is to walk in fellowship with me? It looks like this, being on death row with a noose around your neck. And he says to you who have already followed him in salvation, you've already trusted him for your eternal life. He says, what is it to walk with me today and tomorrow and the next day? He said, join me on death row with a noose around your neck. Yeah, those are the conditions. And he's very clear about it. So first of all, we see the conditions, but then secondly, notice here, the cost. The cost. What is he suggesting that these conditions are going to cost? Look with me at verse 35. For or because 
He's going to explain. Because whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. The first thing that that the conditions, the terms of discipleship cost is your self-preservation. Your self-preservation. Self-preservation is described here when Jesus says, for whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Now, friends, do you know the greatest instinct that you have, it is even there when you are unconscious, is to save your life. Do you know you cannot control your ultimate, your natural bodily instinct to save your life? You say, how do you know, Peter? Because I've seen many people die in my life as a pastor. I've sat with them by that bedside with their family members as we watched them take their final breath. It is one of the most sobering things that a person can ever do. It has given me such a a perspective on life and death to watch people die. I've watched many. And friends, I can't tell you, as I sit there with someone who is in a coma or is unconscious, I see them fighting for life and they're not even doing it consciously. Why? Because it is the instinct to preserve life that God has put in us. We cling to life because we were made for eternal life. Our body is fighting against death because it knows this isn't supposed to be. This is not supposed to be the end because we, God made us for eternal life. And what does it mean for Jesus to say, for you to try to save your life will be to lose it? Friends, What Jesus is saying is, in a sense, your life's like sand. The the, the stronger you squeeze it, the more it's going to go right out of your hands and you're going to have nothing left. If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. And he says the exact opposite. If you want to lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, you're going to save it. You say, what does he mean? Well, friends... I want you to think of the picture of a little seed. A seed that you put in the ground. I want you to imagine that the seed sits up on a countertop. The seed is preserved. The seed is saved. The seed is up there where no one can touch it. No one can harm it. No one can do anything to it. And that seed will sit there and rot, and its entire purpose will be wasted sitting up there on the counter. But then you take a seed, and you put it in some nice black dirt, and you give it some water and some sunshine. Do you know what's going to happen, friends? The seed is going to die. The seed is going to disappear. You're not going to have a seed anymore, but you know what you are going to have? You're going to have life. You're going to have greenery. You're going to have explosive growth. Why? This is what Jesus is saying. Do you want to take the precious life that I've given you and put it up on a countertop where no one can touch it and no one can harm it and it'll be yours preserved perfectly the way you want it? He said, okay, then you'll lose it. That's not, the way I, that's not why I made you. That's not the purpose for which you were built. But do you want to go down into the ground and do you want to die? Do you want to follow me on death row with a noose around your neck? Do you want to renounce your self-preservation and give yourself up entirely to my purposes and the purposes of the kingdom of God? You'll die inwardly. You'll die, but you'll live. You'll save your life for the purpose for which it was intended. Jesus is just saying, you, you want to know the terms of being my disciple? 
Do you want to have the relationship with me that I intend to have with you? Then these are the conditions. These are the costs. The cost is self-preservation. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the Lutheran theologian from Germany who acted so heroically during World War II. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Friends, there's no getting around this. He said, whosoever will come after me. That means anyone. That means you. That means me. There's a straight gate and there's a narrow way that leads to life. And that way is the way of death to our own self-preservation. Here's another cost. The cost is to our self-gratification. Not just our self-preservation, our self-gratification. Look, look with me at what comes next. Verse 35, I'm sorry, into verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Friends, those who say that this passage has absolutely nothing to do with someone's decision to come to Christ for the very first time should ask themselves why Jesus is explaining himself by saying you can lose your own soul. Why the soul, the eternal, the, the eternal salvation of the soul is in view here. He says, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Notice self-preservation is trying to keep your life and losing it. And now he says, the self-gratification that tries to gain the whole world at the cost of one's own soul. What he's asking is this question, how much is your soul worth? What would you give in exchange for losing your soul eternally? Friends, we should ask ourselves, what would we be willing to pay? The question is for those who are not believers in Jesus Christ, if that's you today, friend, is this. What would stop you from giving yourself to Jesus Christ in faith? My father writes in his book, The Straight Gate, of going out on evangelism with a partner. And they knocked on a door and talked to a woman and shared the gospel with her. And this woman says, I can't become a Christian. She said, I can't give up my tank tops. I can't give up my tank tops. And the partner who was there with my father on this evangelism uh, thing, gave her the right theological answer. He, he hastened to tell her, but that's not about what becoming a Christian is. And he was right. He was right. Salvation is about faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. But here's what my father said. There was something that she was putting her finger on, wasn't there? There was something that was stopping her from trusting Jesus Christ by faith in the first place because she knew that there was something in her. There was an idol inside her relating to the way she looked and to how she dressed that she said, I'm not willing to turn away from that idol in order to have Jesus. I'm not willing to take up my cross, if you will. I'm not willing to join Jesus on death row with a noose around my neck. You know, friends, what for other people is so foreign to us, if any of you have grown up in a Christian family and had parents that celebrated you when you came to Jesus Christ by faith, do you know what's an object of death that needs to be taken on for millions of people across the world? The love of those who are closest to them. You think of our dear friend Medea, Shahid, 
growing up in Pakistan with a Muslim family, she knew that the moment she followed Jesus Christ in salvation and in public identification with him in baptism, she knew that that cross for her would mean the relationships with her parents, with the family that was closest and nearest to her. And she had to take up her cross and say, Jesus, I'm coming after you. I'm joining you on death row. You see, friends, let's be clear. You don't earn your salvation by denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him. No, you, your salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And yet all of us know in various different ways, both before we are a Christian and then in every day of our lives as a Christian, the calling of Jesus Christ is to say, are you going to come to me? Then there are some things that will hold you back that you must turn from. There are some things, even good things, like the love and relationships with those who treasure you most, in which if you are going to follow me in faith and discipleship, you are going to have to take up your cross and denounce your own seeming self-interest and say, I'm joining Jesus on death row with a noose around my neck. That's the cost. And Jesus is very clear about what that is. Self-preservation, self-gratification. And thirdly, will you notice with me, self-identification? Will you notice with me in verse 35, whosoever therefore, again, same idea, he's explaining himself, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man, that's Jesus, be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now again, there are two minds on this in very sincere and good Christian people. They disagree on whether this means Jesus is saying, you will, I'm ashamed of you, you will not enter heaven with me. Or he's saying, I'm ashamed of you, you won't have the number of rewards that you would have had otherwise. Well, let me say this. Jesus, I do not believe, is saying here, is speaking primarily to the person who, who is probably all of us, there have been times in your life when you know you should have spoken out more. You should have stood up more boldly and courageously for Jesus and then you maybe shrunk away or you didn't say all the words you should have said and your heart is convicted and you said, oh no, I, I, I was too ashamed to say what I should have. I don't believe that's what he's talking about here. In fact, Peter, the one disciple who was here, openly was ashamed of Jesus Christ, openly denied him and was restored to fellowship again and a good and, and wonderful walk with Jesus Christ. I don't believe that's what he's saying. I think what he's talking about here in context is exactly the kind of person like Medea, like a person who is, is willing maybe to have a kind of flirtation with Jesus Christ but is never willing to publicly identify with him is never willing truly to confess him. Jesus says, if you don't identify with me in this life, don't expect me to identify with you when I come eternally. It connects in with everything that he said about denying yourself, denouncing your own self-interest, and giving, uh, putting to death your own self-gratification, your own self-preservation, I believe what he is saying here 
is if you do not identify with me on death row with a noose around your neck, do not expect me to identify with you when I come for final judgment. Friends, there's no getting around this. There's no kind of tiptoeing around what the message that Jesus is trying to say, not just to his own disciples, but to the whole crowd. He calls the people together, those who are following him and those who are not, those who are believing on him already, those who are not. He said, the terms, I'm going to lay them out. Do you want to know what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ? It looks like this. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. There's the conditions, there's the cost, and finally, thirdly, there's the calculation. Because at this point in the message, this probably sounds like a very sour message, like a very kind of frightening one. Jesus says, come after me, and your life will really be miserable. Come after me, and it's going to be really hard. Come after me if you're some kind of person who loves injuring yourself and hurting yourself. But in fact, that's not at all what Jesus is saying. You know, I read a story about a man named Caleb Dressel. You may have heard of Caleb Dressel. He is one of the most decorated Olympic swimmers in the history of the Olympics. One of the greatest U.S. swimmers He's won seven gold medals, five of them at the most recent Tokyo Games, two of them before that. He's one of the fastest men. He owns multiple world records, the fastest man to have ever swum in these particular uh, different subjects or these divisions. Caleb Dressel, one day I saw an article with him where he was explaining what he does on a typical day. You want to hear what his typical day is? On a typical day, he wakes up, has a quick snack, and is at the gym by 7 a.m. for a two-hour wait session. If I lifted weights for two hours, you couldn't get me off the couch for the next 12, okay? So lifting weights for two hours, then he hits the pool for a two-hour workout. After a break for lunch, work time, and maybe a nap, he's back in the water at 5.30 p.m. for another swim. He says, sometimes you lose a little bit of motivation. He said, sometimes I break down a little bit, but at the end of the day, I know what my goals are, and I know I have to stay focused. Now, I want you to imagine that tomorrow morning, someone comes to you and jostles you out of bed to give you a quick snack, and at about 6.45 says, come on, friend, we're going to the gym for a two-hour weight workout. And then after the two-hour weight workout, they plunge you into the pool and say, now swim for two hours. And then they bring you back and give you some lunch. And you say, okay, we'll give you a quick 30-minute nap. And now at 5.30, we're going back for another two-hour pool workout. What would your response be? Are you crazy? I'm not doing that. Why? Because you don't have Caleb Dressel's goals. Because you don't care about the things that Caleb Dressel cares about. Because Caleb Dressel only has one goal in his mind for his entire life. It's to win gold medals. 
And that means that Caleb Dressel will deny himself in ways that we would never dream of denying ourselves in. It means he will take up a kind of cross and carry that around because there is one thing that is more valuable to him than anything else in all the world. His sleep, his food, his party schedule, his friend life, his relationships, it's winning gold medals. And so he'll deny himself. And friend, Jesus isn't coming to you to say, deny yourself and take up your cross and join me on death row because I want to make your life miserable. What he's saying is this, you've got to understand what it's for. You've got to understand why I'm calling you to be my disciple in this lifestyle. You say, where is that? Well, look in the passage, will you? Look with me at verse 35. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for what? For my sake and the gospel's. Friend, what's the gospel's sake? What's the gospel all about? It's about the forgiveness of your sins. It's about the eternal life for you that is in Jesus Christ. It is about the eternal glory of a new heaven and a new earth for everyone who has been redeemed by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. He said, it's for my sake and it's for the gospels. He goes on to say, look with me in verse 38. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Can you imagine a man down on Nicollet Avenue downtown preaching to a small ragtag group of followers and saying, when I come in the glory of God with the angels one day, you'd look at him and say, you need to be in an asylum You need to be in a a room with padded cells. You're nuts. And here Jesus Christ, as a humble carpenter from Galilee, says, I'm coming in the glory of my Father, and I'm coming with the holy angels surrounding me. Friends, Jesus is saying, this is what it's about. It's for my sake, the one who is the Messiah, the Christ, the King of God's kingdom. I'm the one who this is all for, and the glory of God in me. He goes on to say in chapter 9 and verse 1, Verily I say unto you that there will be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. He says this is what it is to be a part of my kingdom. There's a straight gate and there's a narrow way that leads to life. You see, friends, What Jesus is really getting at here is he's getting at faith. Say, what do you mean by that? He's asking all of us this question, do you actually believe me? Do you actually believe that I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life, that no one comes to the Father but by me? Do you believe that I am the Christ, the Messiah? Do you believe that one day I will come in the glory of my Father with the holy angels? Do you believe that if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, you'll save it? Do you believe? And this is why, friends, the answer that comes back from us 
ultimately is not a measure of our own self-determination, our own self-will. It's not us waking up someday and saying, you know what, that sounds like a good idea. No, what Jesus is doing is he's, 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 he's appealing to something that God does in people. He's appealing to their eyes being opened to the glory of who Jesus Christ is, of the work of the Spirit of God in convincing them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And he's saying, believe on him. Believe on him. Believe that it's worth it. Believe that you're not losing your life when you give it for his sake. Believe that you're not abandoning what is valuable to you when you join him on death row with a noose around your neck. Trust in him and give yourself to him. He's saying, do you believe? Will you follow? You see, friends, do you think Caleb Dressel has ever, looking back over his, de his decorated swimming career, stepped back and said, you know, I wish I'd had a few more mornings to sleep in. You know, I, I, I really wish that I had had some more parties that I could have attended, some more junk food that I could have binged on. Do you think Caleb Dressel cares a bit about what he gave up? No. He sees those seven gold medals hanging up, and he says, it was worth it. And ultimately, friends, the question for all of us is how are we going to place our value on this world versus the next? It's no profit to us, friends, to hold on to a temporary gain when it means an eternal loss. And it's no loss when we take a temporary cost for an eternal gain. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Let's bring it to here, friends, as we close. Elon Musk at Twitter said to his employees very clearly, this is what it's going to look like if you want to be a Twitter employee. And here's what Jesus says to all of us. He says, here is what it's going to look like if you're going to be my follower, my disciple, if you're going to come after me. What that means, and I, what I want to say to those of you who maybe you have never followed Jesus Christ by faith before, you're not sure that you're a Christian this morning. My question today is, Jesus is being very clear with you. Is there anything that could hold you back from accepting by faith his death and resurrection on your behalf and following him? Is there anything that could, hold, could stand in your way? Trust in him. Give yourself entirely to him. But Christian, what about you? What kind of value are you placing on holding on to your self-preservation, to your self-gratification, to your self-identification? Jesus is calling you this morning, saying, take another step. Come down my path. Walk the narrow way with me. Put that noose around your neck and join me on death row. Because this is ultimately what he says. I promise you, it'll be worth it.